0: Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, I think it's our 54th edition or episode. And uh, thank you to everybody who cares about this program. Uh, if you want to support the program, uh, I do have a Patreon account that I've just started up a little while ago. And it's at patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash N T K R, Not That Kind of Rabbi. So patreon.com slash N T K R. Uh, And if you would like to donate, I would love to have you do that. And there's different things in Patreon when you donate at different levels, different things happen. Um, At the highest level in my Patreon account, uh, I offer what I also do, which is spiritual direction or spiritual counseling for people. And you'll get a free one of those a month at the highest level. But any donation is more than welcome. And I truly appreciate anyone who supports the show. You know, I've had a lot of things to think about in the last little while. It's been, as we sort of slowly emerge out of the darkness of the pandemic and still very tentative steps and worried and anxiety and watching my children try to cope with it and watching my my wife and my family and my friends cope with it. There have been some wonderful opportunities, but there's also to be acknowledged that there's some very hard things. And uh, there's a lot of loneliness for people who've had to stay by themselves throughout the pandemic. And there's also been a challenge to us as people as to what exactly have we been up to? Where have we been going in such a hurry? Where's the rush? And are we going to forget all that the minute where the gate reopens? You know, Are we going to enter the roaring 20s at this point? So lots to consider. I consider this sort of an ultimate sabbatical And a chance and an opportunity for people to actually take stock and think, do I need to go to this office every day? Do I need to run around to do all these things? Or can I do some of this on on my technologies and, you know, spend more time in my habitat? A lot of people spending time now fixing up their houses, painting the, the bedroom finally, fixing a lamp, because they're now in their home as opposed to just sleeping in their home. They're living in their homes, apartments, whatever they may be. So I am thinking about that quite a bit. I've also been thinking and knowing I was going to be doing this interview today about, um, I'm doing right now a a, a workshop on how to develop a spiritual toolkit. And in this particular case, it's with a synagogue. So almost everyone in the group is Jewish. So there's a certain frame of reference there. But I do point out to them that I've learned very much from uh, our Buddhist uh, brothers and sisters over the years, and uh, have spent many years really just admiring, respecting, and trying to understand more deeply the teachings of of the Buddha. Um, And when I think of them in terms of the Jewish tradition, Uh, There are Jewish meditation practitioners, was one Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, who has passed away. He passed away actually in his early 40s. But he revived the idea of Jewish meditation and what was involved in that. But the other parts of of the Buddhist tradition that I find interesting is that, for instance, in the American Buddhist movement, um, per capita, the largest exile religious group, as it were, are Jews. Uh, They're Jubus. Uh, and when you think of uh, Salzburg and Cornfield, and my goodness, I hear a truck outside, uh, and uh, Goldstein—all all the different people who've been involved—and you know, at one point I really examined why is this, and it's because there was an undeniable and non-intellectual reality to even the simple act of meditation—the presence, the absolute presence that is required of the meditative sit, as it were. Um, You know, I always say to people when they're doing guided meditations with me, if you manage to get within your 15 to 20 minutes that you're meditating, 42 seconds of actual presence, it's a home run. Consider yourself very lucky. Uh, Don't keep pounding on yourself that you just can't stop wandering. But the other parts of Buddhism that I always appreciated were the idea of living a skillful life that an unskilled life, an unconscious, a reactive life leads to so much unhappiness. And the other piece of the unhappiness in this tradition from what I could glean was the clinging and the grasping. We cling to ideas of who we are and what is life and how it's supposed to go. And we grasp eternally, materially grasping for something, thinking if I just get that one more thing, I'll be okay. And of course, that's never true. So, over the years, uh, I remember one of the first uh, readings I did was uh, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, a wonderful book that really opened my eyes to a lot of what Buddhism can offer to people and to me. So, I consider it a gift. Today, I'm going to be speaking to somebody who has been uh, a teacher and a student, obviously, of his own Buddhist practice, a practitioner. a journey that's so interesting to me through life uh, that included prison as an inmate and prison as a sanctuary and prison as a place of healing that he can bring to other people. Um, he's got a new book out called Radical Responsibility uh, and he is a, a doctor Oroshi, a Tibetan master, and uh, he's here and his name is Dr. Fleet Mo. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I guess I should start with, you know, what they call in the Marvel Comics world, the origin story of of your journey, which would be someone who just got very interested in meditation. When when did that become something that actually mattered in your life?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I was always a spiritual seeker. I, I think um, actually I, I remember my early childhood years as being very magical. Um spent quite a bit of time alone. I mean, I wasn't solitary. I had brothers and sisters, but I gravitated to spending at least some time alone. And um, anyway, the world seemed pretty magical in my early childhood and probably around the time of beginning school, things kind of shifted to just gray tones and the magic went away. I didn't feel plugged into this really vibrant real world anymore and and that was very difficult to deal with and um i think it had to do with family issues and problems as well but at any rate i was always wanting that back i never made peace with that and so that took me down a lot of twisted roads um you know into drug and alcohol experimentation and and sexual promiscuity and and so forth and then it headlong into the whole counterculture but i'd always been a seeker all along and uh it was actually I, I had a good Roman Catholic education um, i I lost my catechismal faith pretty early on I'm not even sure if I ever had it uh, but I, me- I remember really questioning things in like the first and second grade and uh, but I but you know I still went to parochial education and then four years at a Jesuit prep school so I had a pretty thorough education and the Jesuits are good educators and and uh, uh, it was in a uh, comparative religion class, my sophomore year, uh, where we read some texts from different religious traditions. And when I read Buddhist scriptures, it was the first thing that ever made sense to me. And then that summer, I read the book, uh, Zen and the Art of Archery by Haribo, a German who had traveled to Japan and studied with a kudo Japanese archery master, Zen archery master, and, uh, and reading that book, which was basically seeing how he kind of was deconstructing his limited self or ego in the process of that apprentice relationship with his master. Um, reading that, I realized I was a Buddhist and, uh, and I began trying to practice on my own. It was actually probably, um, even though I kind of had lots of inner experiences and contemplative experiences and kind of probably was kind of a natural contemplative, I actually started formally trying to practice meditation Living way up in the Andes Mountains in Peru, probably around the age of 22 or 23, uh, just trying to learn it out of books. My, my first meditation manual was a book called the, the Secret of the Golden Flower, a Taoist little Taoist meditation manual with the board written by Carl Jung.
0: So it, the catechisms and, and Catholic teachings. You know, I'm always fascinated. Is it a failure of pedagogy, or is it just only for some and not for others that in Judeo-Christian circles there is this sort of, you know, there's the old joke in Jewish uh, religion of, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi, there's mice in the in the synagogue, there's mice in the synagogue, and the Rabbi says. Don't, don't worry about it. What do you mean, don't worry about it? It's going to eat the parchment. It's going to eat the Torah. You can't do this. And he said, OK, you're that worried. Go put little keepers on their heads. Give them a bar mitzvah and you'll never see them again. <laughs> so I sometimes wonder, is is it being taught wrong, that kind of Judeo-Christian yeah. stuff, so that it's a miracle story and by adolescence you you reject it?
1: Well, it's hard to say. Um, you know, this was pre-Vatican II. Where we, I grew up this was in the 1950s, right? When I was in parochial school. And um, so pre-Vatican II Catholic theology was pretty, uh, pretty harsh. And the catechismal teachings were pretty, you know, uh, not very sophisticated in a certain way, at least the way they're presented to children. And, um, uh, you know, with Vatican II, uh, which was a major reform within the Catholic church, the theology improved greatly. And in fact, it was at that uh, conclave that uh, Pope John Paul, that second, second thing, yes. um, actually approved a number of uh, Catholic monastics to begin exploring Buddhist traditions and Buddhist meditation. Hmm. And um, so anyway, things opened up quite a bit. Uh, at the same time, they kind of, let go of some of the more mystical qualities of that tradition uh the mass became almost more protestant like and you know the 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 efficient the priest instead of facing the altar uh with his back to the congregation and kind of leading the congregation in this devotional uh turned and faced the congregation and uh and then you know back in the 60s they were having guitar masses and you know things like this so and the one part I liked about, especially the one part I deeply appreciated about the Roman Catholic tradition when I was growing up was the more mystical side of it. I loved the high masses being chanted in Latin with the call and response in Latin. I loved, you know, midnight mass. And so I liked that more mystical quality than sort of the beautiful old vaulted, you know, ceiling cathedrals and so forth type churches. And so with that shift, uh, I would probably more comfortable with the theology. I, I mean, this is long after I'd already become a Buddhist, but. Um, um, uh, but it kind of lost some, some of that mystical quality that I was initially uh, initially attracted to. But can you, you know,
0: can the, you expand was, a, uh, can you expand a bit on the, on that word mystical? Because uh, yeah. the same situation happens in the Jewish tradition where when I talked about jubus at the beginning of, the, of this, part of the pull of that was there is no mystical aspect. But what when you say mystical, what comes into your mind? Yeah.
1: Now, that's a word that can sometimes get misinterpreted um, to imply something otherworldly or uh, but I think it's really uh, it's a connection with our inner life, and not necessarily our inner discursive life, although that may be part of the way we get there, but it's really a quality of being. And often, I think all of us have experiences often out in nature. But could be moments of intimacy with a partner or with our children, or but different experiences just kind of stop our mind, and and then suddenly we're we we experience a glimpse of this quality of of beingness and even a kind of non-dual beingness where there isn't the sense of me having this experience. It's like I'm just kind of really plugged into the world and experience of profound oneness uh, totality beingness my own beingness within that, and and these are experiences that. Are, I think everybody experiences spontaneously. We may notice them more or not. Um, but that's kind of what I'm pointing to, uh, is the mystical quality that gets us into that inner dimension and experiences of beingness, which are naturally connected as well to our, our connection with all of life. And so, you know, profound experiences of beingness and interconnectedness, uh, oneness and so forth.
0: So that idea of beingness in in, in the Jewish tradition and the Sabbath, there are six days of doing and one day of being. Mm-hmm. So we 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 create kind of an architecture of time, um, as opposed to buildings and and iconography. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I find though that when I think of Buddhism itself, there's different ways of being. So. You know, in Thailand, you know, a Theravadin Buddhist would have a completely different view than a Tibetan Buddhist would. The Tibetans always struck me as kind of the Roman Catholic Church of the Buddhist faith because of the iconography and the, the pageantry and and all that. Am, am I off on that, or is there well, something? Well, those
1: parallels to... have been made by others. I mean, it, it's, I wouldn't say so much in terms of the theology, uh, but I would certainly say so in terms of the elaborate iconography and and uh, ornateness and and pageantry and so forth and ritual, yes. Uh, but in its essence, um, Theravadan Buddhism, uh, Pure Land Buddhism, Zen, especially Zen Buddhism, um, and uh, some forms of Pure Land Buddhism are more devotional and involve less actual meditation practice. Mm-hmm. But any of the great meditation traditions within Theravadan Buddhism, the whole forest, uh, this forest monk tradition in Thailand and Burma and other places, uh, certainly the Zen tradition and Tibetan Buddhism, in terms of the actual practices in the inner life, they're, they're very much in alignment. And, and they all embrace the same uh, fundamental teachings. Now, the, the other traditions don't have all the tantras and the kind of advanced inner yogic technologies of Tibetan Buddhism, but they, they share the same view, the same philosophical view, and the core practice of working with one's mind in basic meditation, basic mindfulness and awareness meditation. Is fairly universal to all of those traditions. Although, of course, in the Tibetan tradition, there's also all these other very sophisticated inner technologies.
0: To say nothing of wrathful deities waiting around the corner. Say nothing of that. (laughs) But, okay, so I, I get that. And I wonder in myself about the movement that is now called mindfulness, which has neuroscientists as credible and rational and... This has been proven and we have the CT scans and it's all, you know, science. It's not, you know, wooga Um, And I wor- worry a bit that to make it palatable to people, it had to be drained of, of its mysticism. It had to be drained of that quality that, you know, for those who've never even tried that, but did try things like LSD, they'd get that moment of saying, oh, I get it. I'm in on the cosmic joke. There's a unity to everything. All right, I'm good. But mindfulness to me sort of seems like a watered down thing. And I I wanted your your thoughts on on that. And I don't mean to be pejorative about it. I just just get the uh, feeling.
1: That's a a very active discussion, obviously, in in the world of Buddhism and mindfulness and other contemplative traditions. So, you know, I'm, I'm... I'm very involved in both, I should say. I'm very involved in traditional Buddhism, Buddhist practice and teaching, and I'm very involved in the mainstream mindfulness movement. Um, You know, early on, uh, as this mindfulness movement emerged, people were kind of trying to figure out, well, what to call it. And sometimes we're differentiating it from Buddhism and other contemplative traditions and calling it secular mindfulness. And then some of the major presenters of that mainstream movement, like Jon Kabat-Zinn and others, uh, didn't like that use of that word, which is interesting because my own Tibetan teacher, Trunk Ramshae, in developing a model called Shambhala training, which was meant to be kind of more out in the world more, he he made the distinction of secular being not religious, but still very much connected with the sacred. So he was trying to kind of normalize, you know, or reform the word secular to not mean non-sacred or non-inner, right? Hmm. But the general connotation of secular tends to be pretty. Pretty much that way and so Kabat-Zinn and others kind of didn't like the use of the word secular so much so it's gravitating maybe towards mainstream mindfulness movement things like that but for Kabat-Zinn and others they've always said you know what we're talking about in terms of mindfulness is very much about the sacred and very much about accessing the, the dimension that we call sacredness or sacred world which could be another way of talking about the mystical or the oneness or the inner dimensions or the interconnectedness and and so forth so so I, I just to say I think there are many, many people in the mind, mainstream mindfulness movement, both as practitioners and teachers, or deeply connected to the, the inner life and the contemplative life of, of those of that tradition and the roots out of which it arose, whether they're Buddhist or not. Um, certainly, some people that are being introduced to mindfulness in that mainstream way and corporations and I mean, I, a lot of my work is bringing it Uh, to at-risk incarcerated returning youth and adults and then also to the criminal justice and public safety professionals, the correctional officers, probation and parole officers, police and uh, other first responders and so forth. And so in some of these initial introductions of mindfulness to uh, various groups of people, uh, the emphasis may be on stress reduction, stress management, on self-regulation, emotion regulation and, and things like this. Uh, but it's always there's almost as I'm aware of within the mainstream mindfulness tradition. there's always an emphasis on self-compassion and so already there you're starting to move kind of into someone's inner world a little bit and and trying to create not only the value but the experience of self-compassion and uh, and then it very much leads to uh, you know various compassion practices for others so most Mainstream mindfulness programs include some kind of compassion training and compassion practices as well, like the loving kindness practice or the metta practice coming from the Theravadan tradition or similar practices coming out of the Tibetan tradition. And so, and there's also been a lot of research done on those practices as well as the basic mindfulness, the body mindfulness, the breathing practice. The other part of it for me, uh, I know some, I've heard some Tibetan teachers in particular say, one of the challenges in the West is that we don't really have a culture in the West that supports deep spiritual practice. Um, you know, there has been a tradition of, of uh, within ca- Catholic monasticism, um, but that was kind of very, um, um, uh, what's the word, set off from the, the rest of the world, cloistered in a sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's actually only connection between that and the laity arose really in the 60s and 70s after Vatican II, when many more lay people got interested in going on retreats and doing things like that. Some of the monasteries opened their doors to hold retreats for lay people, and that continues to this day. But still, it was kind of cloistered from society. And whereas they're contrasting it to in Asia, where, you know, in India and Tibet and Nepal and other places in Asia, there's much more of a cultural support that it, that it makes complete sense that at some point someone maybe who has a, led a full life uh, as a householder, then at some point lets that go and goes, you know, becomes a wandering sadhu or, or goes into a monastery or an ashram that this is a normal part of life. And so, you know, they've expressed that the lack of that here in the West. And for me, my feeling is that the emergence, not only of the, the mainstream mindfulness movement, but also of the Hatha yoga movement that's been there for a long time. And many people feel it got very commercial and certainly it has. And some yoga doesn't emphasize the spiritual roots of the Vedic tradition as much. But nonetheless, I think the emergence of, of yoga in our culture in the way it is, and also the mainstream mindfulness movement is part of shifting a culture so that you have a culture that will ultimately be more supportive of people in, at some point in their lives choosing to go into a deeper uh, contemplative path, yogic path, mystical path, what have you. So I, so I, I think this broad uh, proliferation of these practices is actually a very healthy thing for the culture. And sure, there's going to be the mindfulness, the mindfulness-like kind of stuff, but that's just part of of you know how things move out into the, the greater culture. Yeah. I don't really have a problem with it.
0: And, and the wor- worst comes to worst, it's a Trojan horse for compassion. Exactly. Right? So. You, you still find a way to insert...
1: And a Trojan horse for self-awareness, because... You know, a lot of the most of the very serious problems that we're still beset with in our culture from, you know, persistent racism and income inequality and the climate emergency that we really need to start paying attention to. It's actually an existential crisis. All of these things continue and proliferate because we ignore them, because we're turning away. We're choosing to ignore and compartmentalize. And mindfulness is also a Trojan horse in that regard because it it begins to disrupt our, our ability to do that. It, it naturally over, over time begins to disrupt our, I mean, we're fabulous at compartmentalizing. <laughs> Even in my deep Buddhist path for many years, I was obviously compartmentalizing with how I ended up in prison. But um, but nonetheless, it, I think it is a Trojan horse. And I often say that in terms of when I'm bringing mindfulness into organizations, into correctional agencies, law enforcement agencies, that you know this is our culture change. And, and the more mindful people become, the less willing they're gonna be To just let the status quo go on when the status quo is actually not supporting people and actually uh, uh, has within it a lot of injustice or, or even abusive things, you know? So I think it is a trojan horse on many levels.
0: So for those who don't know, you did spend 14 years, I believe, incarcerated Uh for drug smuggling at one point in your life. Um, And having spent time here in Canada in some prisons, um, having done a, we did a show once on um, what to do with, what, what What should we do with these men? And everyone who was in the show was a, a life, a lifer. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were calling in, it was live. And, you know, it was taking a big chance by the solicitor general at the time to let us do this. But people were calling in saying, "Just hey, throw away the key. And I kept saying, you know, on air, uh, well, life is actually the wrong term. These people are going to get out of prison and they're going to be sitting beside you at a Tim Hortons. How do you want them to be in that kind of a society? You've done so much to take that experience that could have broken you and have it find a way to heal you and heal others. Tell me what you want to tell me about that experience. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, interesting, just an aside, you know, I, I, uh, got an opinion piece, I guess kind of a, uh, yes, I guess an opinion piece published in USA Today, I don't know, a year or two ago. Um, and uh, it was about uh, abuse, abusive practices with mentally ill prisoners. Um, and, um, and because it referenced a particular incident as kind of the anchor incident uh, in a Florida facility, uh where a mentally ill prisoner had ended up removing their own genitalia um and it was stated in language a little more graphic than that uh the piece went completely viral it's really the only thing i ever had that went completely viral and even went viral by usa today terms it was it, it was quite amazing how viral it went and and it was a it was actually a really good piece uh about pointing to um, that you know, using isolation with men, with any prisoners leads to mental instability and mental illness over time. And but putting ment- already mentally ill prisoners in isolation is is really criminal, really negligent, and and often leads to suicide and all kinds of other issues. So that's what the article was about. But the the blowback from it in terms of you know, it's a big comments field, you know, online USA mm-hmm. Today and just some of the stuff was so hateful you know, just some of the comments were so hateful. So it's, you know, um, the media has done a good job of demonizing um, the people in our criminal justice systems over many years. So people do often express a lot of anger. Um, and, you know, part of it's reasonable because people have been victimized by people. And, but at any rate, there's, uh, you know, um, anyone who really gets involved in the field and starts interacting with people uh, they realize that the, that there, but for the grace of the God of my choosing, go I, right? That they're all human beings, and it could easily have been any of us uh, that end up in that situation.
0: It's so interesting yep. being in the, in the environment. I remember we spent a week there before we did the, the program, uh, and I was interviewing uh, different inmates. And, you know, the humanization, and then you read what happened, what, what got them in there, you know, how this man did what he did. And then you go back and you know there was one who was a doctor and a lawyer, he was both. And he had a string of clinics and they were all going down. And he had a psychotic break and stabbed his wife to death. Uh, and I remember him coming up to me while I was there and saying, I, I listened to you on the radio. Uh, I, I really like your work. Uh, um, if you want to interview me, you can. Uh, I'll let, uh, you know, you have permission to look at my file. And I'm sitting with this man, and I'm I'm thinking, this is a human being, right? There is a divine spark in everyone. And this man has that and I have that. So in listening to him, I had to open my heart. But then the next man I was interviewing, had molested a child who had died in in the molestation, because he was trying to stop the child from yelling out and suffocated him didn't mean to in this case, but who cares, is the way people saw it, and you probably should in this point. But he said something about basically trying to say, so don't you think I should eventually get out of here? And I found myself saying, I don't think so. I have children and I know you don't, like he used to go and try to hide in the forest to get away from people because he knew there was something wrong with him. And I said, I wish I could say, I, I think it's a good idea but I don't think it's a good idea so uh, my heart really broke being in that environment you were in there as an inmate why didn't you just become just another guy on the range why did you become someone else
1: well i was fortunate that i went in with a lot of um healthy background and a lot of training uh i i well i don't know if me if i could have but the possibility of that was there when it was very much in my face and i realized that very early on and um I realized the world I was in was full of anger and bitterness. And, uh, you know, any time you're arrested, the whole process of being arrested and then prosecuted and sentenced and going to prison, the whole process from the very beginning, intentionally or not, becomes a process of tremendous shaming and demonization. And you, you feel like you're just being buried under a mountain of demonization and shame and ill and so forth. And so it's quite natural to want to protect yourself from that. I mean, it's instinctual just to kind of protect your your being, your psyche from that. And usually the way we protect ourselves, we armor ourselves up with our own victim story, with anger, with bitterness and so forth. And so that's really what you see among the incarcerated for the most part. And, and uh, I realized very quickly on when I got to the federal prison where I did my time, you know, that that was the world I was in. And, and, I, and I, if, if I was gonna survive the time and, and get out someday, I didn't wanna come out that way. And I really didn't wanna live that way while I was there. And I knew I was going to have to very proactively work at not ending up being that way. And fortunately, you know, when I landed in prison, I had already been training as a, a deep training as a Buddhist practitioner and teacher for 10 years and, and a lot of really deep retreat practice and so forth. And I'd also earned a master's degree in what was then called Buddhist and Western Psychology, the same program is now called the Master's in Contemplative Psychotherapy. It was a very intense three-year clinical training program, training us to work with people experiencing a lot of schizophrenia and psychosis, people experiencing extreme states and so forth. And uh, it was grounded in both Eastern and Western psychology and, and so forth. And um, so uh, I had a lot of training and a lot of resources when I went in and uh, I had the inspiration of my own Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who was someone who just, in my experiences, served humanity 24 seven. And, and although my family that I grew up in had its issues and alcoholism, so there's still people with very good values. And so I had that kind of framework behind me. And then here I found myself in this world of tremendous suffering. And one of the fortunate things about when I actually arrived, I've been in these county jails going through trial and sentencing because I was never granted bail. So I turned myself in and then I was locked up. And, uh, and that was a really hellish experience. And I was just going through a really painful kind of dark night of the soul realizing what I'd done to my son who was nine years old then was going to grow up without his dad realizing I'd completely torched my own life and let down my teach my community my family and brought a lot of shame to my family just all of it I was just you know finally hit the wall of all the selfish decisions I've been making for so long and, and all the confusion that I've been somehow justifying and all kinds of things and so I was facing all that it was and it was, it was also the, the county jail I was in was just literally a hellhole so uh, when I actually got to this federal prison, it was kind of a relief because it was a great big place. You could walk around, I could get a job. There was a yard you could go out on. There was a weight room and, you know, and uh, so it was kind of a relief. But when I arrived there, I was really caught up in the drama of my own situation. I was originally sentenced to 30 years, no parole because I was convicted of this so-called drug kingpin sentence, which I didn't agree with that. I don't still this day, I don't think I was any kind of a kingpin, but, uh, and actually if they hadn't charged me with that truck count, I would have just pled guilty and put myself at the mercy of the judge and avoided a trial. But because that count carried with it this no parole sentence up to life, I could have gotten life with no parole and I'd still be there uh, absent a presidential pardon, which is very unlikely. So at any rate, I arrived there with that. And you know, the paper the next day after my sentencing said I'd be 65 before I'd have any chance of release. And so I was pretty caught up in the drama of my own situation, as you might imagine. But when I arrived in this federal prison hospital, this is the maximum security federal prison hospital in the, in the US federal system in Springfield, Missouri. And I get there, I'm walking in the halls and I'm seeing blind men being you know, helped down the hall. I'm seeing uh, emaciated uh, you know, patients being wheeled around in wheelchairs you know, or suffering with cancer and AIDS and other illnesses. I'm, I'm seeing you know, paraplegics and quadriplegics. I'm seeing, I'm seeing men coming out of the psych ward because this was both a psychiatric and a medical facility. They had about 600 medical patients, about 400 psychiatric patients. And then they had about 300, what they call work cadre prisoners or general population prisoners there just to help run the place. And I was in that group. But uh, you'd see men coming out who were able to get out of the psych ward and go to the education department or go other places or to the yard. You'd see them, you know, coming down the hall, doing a Thorazine two-step, you know, or the Helladol two-step, you know, over, over-medicated over with psychoactive drugs. And so it was almost like a Bellini movie when I first got there and and that just immediately shook me out of the preoccupation with the drama of my own situation. And I just realized, okay, I'm here, this is my community and I gotta show up and figure out how to show up and serve. And, um, and that just became immediate, right? And it was the, I, very much the influence of my own teacher who was just kind of like there on my shoulder all the time. And, and so that's what I said about doing, I got a job. Somebody told me right away when I got there, you need to go get yourself a job somewhere or they're gonna just put you to work in food service in the kitchen. And, you know, he asked me a couple of times, so we should go get ask for a job in the education department because you got an education. So I went there and I had a master's degree, so they gave me a job. So I was a school teacher for 14 years, um, helping people learn to read, uh, earn their GED, uh, learn English and uh, help people who are doing correspondence, college studies as well. So that was my day job for 14 years, Monday through Friday. And um, so, you know, I, I, I did that and, but, you know, Really quickly, I also just realized what I was talking about before the culture I was in. And so I made a choice that if I was gonna be able to survive this time, and at that time I thought I was still looking at 30 years, um, uh, you know, that I had to embrace absolute 100%, 200% responsibility for having got myself in there and for what I was gonna do with it and how I was gonna get myself through and beyond it. And so that was really the birth of this model I've developed called Radical Responsibility. Uh, was that choice? But it was it was a choice I made very clearly. But then it was a choice I had to make continually, day in and day out, because the onslaught of that culture is it, it's very strong. And also, you know, I was kind of in this in between world because I was very clear about keeping boundaries with correctional staff and that my community was my fellow prisoners. I never embraced the convict mentality, and you know, I, I didn't want to embrace the convict mentality. Uh, you know, in the so-called convict code and all of it, which is pretty brutal, and it, you know, it's all—it's understandable. It's a very polarized environment there, where you know the the inmates all uh, or the prisoners all perceive all the prison staff as the police, and you know, the, all the correctional staff tend to perceive the, the prisoners as thugs and uh, and less than. And so, in that very charged environment, it's understandable how the convict code arrived. But I, I didn't want to embrace that mentality. But I knew that was my community, and so. Uh, you know, if you want to get along in prison, just stand around with other prisoners and just say MF this and MF that and MF that and every, every other word, or it's you, harder to get a sentence out without three MFs in it, right? And if you talk like that, you, you know, you badmouth everything, badmouth the institution, and then, then they'll say, okay, you're one of us. Well, I didn't do that. And I also didn't, I kept my distance from the staff, but I did engage with my fellow prisoners in lots of ways. You know, I was teaching school. I was, I uh, got very involved in the 12 step recovery, uh, uh, was a leader in that for 14 years. I was, um, been doing the hospital circuit that we started. And I, you know, I played sports and I lifted weights. So I was very engaged, but I just wasn't like being completely one of them. So, you know, people didn't quite know how to regard me, you know, and I was in this kind of in-between world, but, but I had to really proactively make that choice every day to, to live from that place of, of ownership for my situation and what I was doing with it. And that was really the, Besides having all the the resources I had in terms of my contemplative practices, that choice and making that choice every day was really the seed or or the really the fuel for my transformation.
0: So I would imagine in the the world you were in that uh, there would be lots of um, Christian evangelical movement pieces. There would be a lot of that kind of talk, um, you know, find the Lord. And I'm sure there was a chapel. Um, How do you get in there? You show up and say, I'd like to meditate in here. What did they say? Go away. You're uh, bugging that's me. That's
1: a very interesting story, actually. And you're right. The, the prison chapels tend to be dominated by evangelical Christianity, but, and many of the prison chaplains tend to be evangelicals. Um, so as soon as I could get, I had the first opportunity to be get off my unit or something during a, they had controlled movements in that prison. You could only move between uh, five minutes before the hour and five minutes after the hour. They'd open the gates across and you could move, go from, your unit to the rec area or to the yard or to the chapel or somewhere. And, but then they lock up again. Right. So you so when I got to opportunity, I went down to the chapel and it was a weekday. There wasn't anything going on in there. Chapel space was empty, but there's a big chapel space and right across from it. And you kind of enter a door and then you're in the whole chapel area and there's the chapel space for services. And then there's the offices. And so I went into the office and there was a, a woman chaplain there. Uh, she was a Methodist. Um, and uh, African-American woman, Methodist uh, minister. And um, I asked her, I said, uh, I said, do you have any kind of like meditation programs or yoga programs or anything like that? She said, no, no, we don't have anything like that. And I said, well, you know, I'm actually trained as a meditation teacher and I'd like to, to start a meditation group or a program. She goes, no, 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 you can't. Inmates, I ain't start nothing around here. It has to be uh, sponsored by, started by an outside uh church and we have a long list of churches waiting to get in here so you forget about it so i had noticed that the chapel space was empty when i as i walked toward her office and so i said well there's nobody in the chapel right now can i go in there and just sit and meditate and she was kind of i could tell she was trying to come up with a reason to say no <laughs> and she couldn't come up with one so she said well okay but if anybody comes you gotta leave All right so uh, so i just went in there and sat and did my meditation and I just started coming down there on a regular basis whenever I could and doing that when the chapel was otherwise empty. And then I met a, um, uh, a young man, uh, from Nepal, uh, uh, who, from the Himalayan region who grew up in a, uh, he was Nepalese, but grew up in a Tibetan Buddhist family and, uh, asked him if he'd be interested and he hadn't really grown up with a lot of meditation, but his family had their own Lama. You know, he grew up in that Buddhist culture. And, and then I met another, an older man, middle-aged man who was, uh, uh, from Taiwan, Chinese, from Taiwan, and, and he'd been working on ships, uh, some kind of engineer working on ships and got budget for smuggling or something, and and he had a strong background in, in Tai Chi, or Qigong, things like that, so I met him and invited him, so the two of them started coming down and sitting with me, and that was the beginnings of this group, and uh, you know, eventually it got formalized, it, the chapel didn't really want it to happen, but it kind of happened by osmosis, and I got sponsorship from our outside uh, Buddhist uh, community that I was part of. And we started getting mail in that name. I gave it a name, the MCFB, which is uh, Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, Dharma Study Group. And they start getting, and at one point the chaplain pulled me in and he goes, How did this group get started? <laughs> I said, I don't know, chaplain. I, Didn't you guys do that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. Why are you asking me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but at any rate, you know, we met, uh, we had, Uh, We were then meeting on Wednesday evenings for two hours, and then we managed to get a Saturday time for three hours, so uh, after about a year. So then, you know, we had two sessions a week for for those 14 years I ended up being there, and um, it was definitely a newcomers group. I mean, sometimes we had some guys that were involved in it for two or three, four years at a time, but this was a very transitory prison. Most of the men in general population didn't want to stay there. Uh, They didn't like being around the hospital. There wasn't a whole lot going on if they were still into the game and into the drugs and, you know, the great public stuff so they uh so you know the average day in general population was probably a year to 18 months and I was there for 14 years so the group was you know newcomers group I was just you know continually giving meditation instruction to new guys and uh you know showing videos and that I, would, I managed to get to chapel to purchase from outside and you know different themes and uh but it was a it was a powerful part of my life which is I just went down there twice a week, put out the cushions to see who would show up
0: you just did you didn't wait you just did. Now, th- there's two things. One is, how did th- 30 become 14? And the other one is, yeah. the Supreme Court, at a certain point, recognizes Buddhism as a as a religion, which, in my sarcastic mind, I think big of them. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, it recognizes it Bet- as valid. It's
1: called Beto versus Cruz, I think.
0: Yeah. And they end up saying, OK, Buddhism is legitimate in a prison setting. Right. But how do you do the 30 to 14? Because I want to talk about radical responsibility in a minute. But let's, I yeah. wonder.
1: Well, first of all, uh, I was sentenced under what they call the old law prior to 1987. And in 1984, the Congress passed the Sentencing Reform Act. But it didn't actually uh, become law until they came up with the new sentencing guidelines. And so it became in, in effect in 1987. And that's where they got rid of... Uh, parole altogether in the federal system. And they came up with these sentencing guidelines. Like if you were convicted of a certain charge, it had guidelines that you, you had to be sentenced to at least this much and you couldn't be sentenced to more than that. And if the judge didn't give you enough time to make the prosecutors happy, they could appeal it. Or if the judge tried to give you more time than the guidelines then you could appeal it, right? So the judges were really constricted and that went into effect in 1987. But I was sentenced in 1985. And so at that time, uh, my, my charge of the one of the five counts I was convicted of carried this no parole sentence. And so I wasn't eligible for parole, but then they still had a lot of what they called good time. And they had statutory good time, which depending on the length of your sentence, you got anything over 10 years, you got 10 days a month. And they take that right off the back end of your sentence. And so I had, uh, a 30 year sentence. So, uh, uh, that's 30, that's 300, that'd be 360, uh, 3,600 days. So they take that off the back end. You're saying that gives you your statutory release date. And then they have what they call work, good time or extra good time. Or sometimes if you're in a federal prison camp, they call it camp good time. But basically if you just keep a job, uh, you get this additional time. And if you had a sentence as long in mind, you got five days a month and you earn that as you went. So I figured all that, I really didn't figure all that out until I've been in the federal prison for, I don't know, six months to a year or something before I kind of figured all this out. And I realized then on my 30-year sentence, I would serve 18 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. Now, if you get in trouble in prison, they start taking that away from you in chunks. Mm -hmm. You can lose it all. There are times the prisoners that end up doing their sentence day for day, they call it. And that's because they're constantly getting in trouble and losing their good time, right? So... Um, and, and so it, within the convict culture, sometimes even pride in it. I do my sentence day for day. You know?
0: <laughs> I, I'm no <laughs> sissy. Out early. <laughs> um,
1: and uh, so, um, uh, that, that,
0: that's the, the actual, the, the perfect wrong kind of pride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really proud that I, I'm really sucking it up here.
1: Yeah, oh, um, nutty. So, at any rate, like anyone does, I appealed my conviction, and it took my appeal. I can't remember, somewhere between two and three years to go through the appellate courts. And and on appeal, they knocked off one count, not the no parole count, but a similar count because there was a conspiracy count. And really, the, the continuous criminal enterprise with so-called kingpin statute and the conspiracy that are really the same, except the other one carries this extra penalty and it's focused around the kingpin thing. But they're both conspiracy type charges or in the civil world, the RICO type charges, right? They're conspiracy and and they're very easy to prove and very difficult to defend yourself against by design right and and so uh they're not supposed to charge you with both of them at the same time that's well-established law because it confuses the jury. but the jury but they do it anyway and then on appeal all they do is throw out the conspiracy count, and they don't throw out your whole case which they should they should give you a new trial but they don't So anyway, they, I had an aggregate sentence built up from these five things. Fortunately, it wasn't stacked one on the other. It was aggregated. Um, And um, so I had, um, uh, they threw out five years. So that reduced my sentence from 30 down to 25, but I still had the no parole sentence. So that then meant at that point, I knew if I stayed out of trouble, I would serve 14 and a half years. Right. Which is What I did, I served 14 inside and then I served. Uh, six months when I got out, three months in a halfway house and three months under house arrest. And then so, I went into supervision for about 10 years.
0: So I, I I remember talking to someone in prison who had never seen an automatic teller machine, an ATM, uh, and he wasn't about to. But he, ironically, the, the prison was making the ATM kiosks for uh-huh. people to use. So he finally figured it out. But it struck me that after 14 years, even with all the, all the pieces that you had managed to put together, okay, so there's two things here. One is, do you think this was all supposed to happen for you the way it happened? Or, or do you not ascribe to that kind of
1: <laughs>
0: making sense no, of I things?
1: do and I don't. You know? um, um, it's certainly part of who I am today and you know i made the decision to turn myself in actually i knew i was going to be indicted and uh they'd already seized some of my properties and i knew i wasn't being being investigated i I was going to be invited and i was really considering whether i should go on the road or not uh and from a buddhist perspective i was trying to see is this like my personal karma i need to stay and deal with or is this just the reagan era crazy drug war thing and i should you know go live in a monastery somewhere in thailand or something and um so I, I, at one point I, I put that question to my teacher and uh, he was in Canada at the time actually. And so an intermediary, intermediary friend of mine went up, was going to be going up there anyway. So, and he sat with her for a few days and he came back and he said, no, I think you should stay and face it. Um, and, and most importantly, if you were on the run, it would be very hard for you to continue your path. And especially with me uh, and as your teacher but if you're in prison, even if they put you in prison for a long time, and they were threatening to put me away for a long time, uh, you'll still be able to practice and pursue your path. And so uh, so I took his advice. In terms The first time I'd really taken anybody's advice in my life. Before that, he <laughs> wanted me to do one thing, just tell me to do the opposite, you know. Um, but I took his advice, and I actually have never regretted it.
0: So was it to work out your karma? Yeah, you know. Because uh, that's I a tricky thing in to, Western thought, karma. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. in, in some way, but, you know, in some ways, by that time, by the time I got sentenced, by the time I even was tried, really, I had stopped my smuggling activity several years prior. And, you know, I could have gone on without my life and I would have led a non-criminal life and I would have been fine. But I would have gone through the transformation that I went through in prison um, in that way, at least not in that way. And I wouldn't be serving the world in the way I'm serving it today. I mean, there were times when I was in there. That I got to, you know, uh, it felt like this is something my teacher just cooked up and you know gave me all <laughs> the training and then decided to drop me in his hell realm and you know. Well,
0: Trungpa Rinpoche may have well done that. It,
1: well, he could have. He was quite an extraordinary being. But yeah. He, anyway, he, I he, try to mostly take responsibility for having got myself in there, and, and that's right, not so, hard, uh, not hard to create that narrative because I certainly earned my way there.
0: So let's talk about radical responsibility, because uh, you know the word radical acceptance has become part of psychotherapeutic conversations and Tara Brack and all of that. Um, radical responsibility, what does that mean in, in what your writings are about?
1: I usually describe it as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, which includes those circumstances Upon reflection, we can see we had something to do with, you know, either to a great degree or a lesser degree, but also those circumstances that really just seem to kind of land on our head. And everyone would agree we had nothing to do with it, unless it has to do with past like karma or something. And who knows about such a thing anyway? Hmm. So, but really, it's just there. But at some point, you know, the saying question is even if we can't see we had any relationship to allowing it to happen or creating it or, you know, any unconscious patterns of ours or nothing, everyone would agree it's really had we're complete, innocent, we're victimized by the circumstances of situation. At some point, the saying question is, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to let it take me down? Or am I going to find the most creative way to respond to this to move my life forward in the best possible way? Now, this is for ourselves because the, one of the really important things about this model is the distinction between ownership and blame. So radical responsibility, obviously, is not about blaming others, but it has absolutely nothing to do, not one iota to do with blaming oneself. And certainly not about blaming victims. It's really just about the ownership that allows us to have the agency to move forward in our life. And it's because it's really the only place we have any real personal agency or personal power. And it's grounded in a view of tremendous self-compassion for ourselves and for others. So this isn't about us. someone else who's been victimized and saying to them, hey, you need to get off it and embrace radical responsibility. Absolutely not. That would be ridiculous. But it's about ourselves. And, and you know, it, it is, it's not in any way being dismissive of the fact that people are you know, deeply victimized in tragic and terrible ways. And for a lot of people, it would be absolutely heroic that they could ever shift out of that. Um, And, um, but people have, and there's all kinds of extraordinary examples of that. I mean, Victor Frankl's, you know, experience in the death camp at Auschwitz, where I've been going every year for the last 20 years, with the Zen peacemakers and, and many other examples of people that have been in the worst imaginable situations and found a way to embrace self-agency in those situations and have it become transformational for themselves and often creating something that's
0: transformational for others all right they so let me see if walk. i let me see if i can figure this out yeah mm-hmm. okay so so let's say it's a situation where I, i'm having trouble understanding my my role and my responsibility in what has happened to so-called to me mm-hmm. um in that situation are you saying ownership is not about trying to figure out where the blame is in the constellation of events. You know, it was my fault. It was their fault. It's our fault. It's not about that, the responsibility piece. It's it's about the ability to, to say it is, it just is. And because it is, I have an obligation to have an intention to uh, coming out of this, to do something with this. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's it in part. I mean, in large part, that's it. I will say though, that we do, uh attempt to see our part in certain circumstances but not for the purpose of blame but just for the purpose of learning because if i can see that any role i had or any even just the progression of incidents you know from a to b to c to d or something and i understand something about that then i have you know knowledge that can allow me not to repeat the same pattern right or not to get taken advantage of in the same way or not blindly getting myself into the same situation or not letting some unconscious script I have for my childhood continue to run my life, right. right? So it's it's solely for the purpose of learning, and that learning gives us greater freedom. But apart from that, the ownership piece is really, it's just because it's literally, I mean, you know, we can get into parsing out blame, for example, right? I mean, let's say you and I were in a conflict, and we had some business deal that went one south, and we're both really upset. In fact, we're ready to go to fisticuffs or lawyer up and sue each other. And somehow we have a friend that there's not only to that, you're just gonna blow your money on lawyers. I know this mediator, right? And so we go to a mediator and they interview us and the mediator said, I don't know what you, you, you're both a very compelling storytellers so that he said, he said thing, but I'm gonna get, we have the videotape and I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna put together a focus group and they don't know either one of you couldn't care who about either one of you, we're gonna have them watch it and see what they say. So they come back and they, 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 you know, the mediator says, well, well, I have to say they agree that it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's more the other guy's fault, right? And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they're saying to me, it's more, it's more your fault. And, and I said, good, I'm glad you found really brilliant people. And I realized it's all his fault. And maybe the mediator says, no, they, they do say you have some of the ethics, some of the ownership. They think it's like 60, 40, 70, 30. And I don't really believe it. But as long as they believe, it's mostly his fault. You know, they keep pushing me. Right. Okay. All right, I'll accept I have some part in it. I don't know if it arises to a level 30 or 40%, but I'll embrace that I have some part of it. But along the way, we realize it's mostly his fault and I feel vindicated. I feel good about that, right? Does that really make sense? Because if I'm I'm unhappy by definition, right? I'm upset, I'm, I'm unhappy. And if I'm really convinced that it's 70%, 60%, 100%, whatever percent, even 30%, your fault or your the causation being you, how much of my power am I giving away to you?
0: I get that. I I also think to myself, this perhaps in spiritual terms, you know, there is always the the ego and the true self. And when you're speaking there, I'm thinking, okay, the ego of me wants to win this. I, I gotta be right and they gotta be wrong. Mm-hmm. But if I can access through contemplative practice and uh, reflection my true self, then I move myself away from the duality of this conversation into not even, oh, well, I guess I see your point of view, but just to understand that I can only do things from my own place. I can't fix whatever it is that's moving you, but I can say, this is an, a, a situation that is making me unhappy, and I want to be able to do something that is proactive as opposed to reactive. Does that, is that part of what you're talking about?
1: Absolutely, because otherwise, I'm, if I, I'm putting you in charge of my internal state. And right. I don't get to change until you change. And I, can I control you? No, you
0: right. know we
1: can't control people in, in, in situations outside of ourselves. We try, like, I, but it's futile. We can't control others, and we're all uncontrolled. We know that because we ultimately are going to do what we do.
0: So does forgiveness play into what you're talking about as well? well certainly, because
1: certainly can, but it, it's really and and you pointed to a deeper level to it when you pointed to the the you know beyond the limited self or beyond the ego to you know mm-hmm. to a deeper sense of who we are really as beings. So. That's why my radical responsibility model, it's not just a mental toughness model. Uh, I certainly align with Socratic thinking and, you know, uh, these eight, these ideas have been around for a long time. I think Marcus Aurelius, uh, considered the last great Roman emperor, and one of the stoic philosophers said something like, you know, the vast majority of people feel their destiny is controlled by their circumstances, but actually their destiny is controlled by their response to those circumstances, right. or when it's unconscious, their reaction to those circumstances, So these ideas have been around for a long time, but this is not just stoic philosophy, it's that, and it's not just mental toughness, it is that, but it has the only inner side to it, because what really gives us the capacity to do that, and the context for really doing it at a deeper level, is beginning to, through contemplative means, get glimpses of and stabilize ourselves more in that non-dual realm or the non-small self realm of our being, and that gives us a greater context to do this. And then ultimately that can give us the context to forgive from, uh, to let go. And, you know, forgiveness has for me, three elements. The first is if we have a grievance, we feel aggrieved by someone else's actions. One is the constant choice to just let it go. This is say because when we hold on to it, who's suffering, right? Who's suffering, right? When we're holding on to a grievance, who's suffering. It's like, there's that, you know, we're giving somebody free rent in our head, right? You know, we're, we're providing them with a leather couch, a big screen tree and make a nachos for them every <laughs> night. And they haven't thought about us in five years and we're still spewing on it, right? So who's
0: suffering? It's also the poison you drink, hoping to kill the exactly, other person, right? It right? right.
1: goes all the way back to Lao Tzu. I think that's the truth. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, uh, so we let that go in our own enlightened self-interest. I'm just going to put it over here on a shelf so I can move forward with my life. That's one level of forgiveness. Another level of forgiveness might be that I, I'd like to go deeper than that. And I'd like to really do some work to really change how I feel towards that being in my heart, right? And so I might do, uh, you know, uh, in the 12-step work in the alcoholic, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a reference to a Christian minister, having, Christian minister having recommended a practice when you're holding a grievance or a resentment against someone which, were con, which are considered deadly in the 12-step work because they activate you going back to your drug of choice. So when you're holding a grievance or resentment Pray for that person and pray that they would have everything wonderful that you would ever hope for in your life. And just keep doing that, even if you don't believe it. And eventually people have had the experience that that will dissolve the resentment, dissolve the enmity. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, we have various compassion practices, uh, Tom Lin and the Tibetan tradition, which is exchanging self for other on the medium of the breath, where we actually take on another's suffering and we're, we're sending out to them, uh, you know, blessings of compassion, basic goodness and so forth. So there's lots of practices we can do to dissolve that enmity and that grievance. So it's actually gone. And I did that very actively in prison because if I'd wanted to get into blaming when I got locked, there were a lot of people that contributed to me getting the time I got. I did a lot of people's time. And and the government, when they're prosecuting you at that level, they don't follow any of their rules. They break all the rules. They break the laws. They play hardball. And I did a lot of people's time. So I could have been focused on that. But instead, and there's some people that had ostensibly been close associates or friends of mine that really stuck me in the back. So I, I included them in my tunnel-in practice forever until I got to the point where I held no enmity at all. I walked out of it. In fact, early on in prison, I really had no enmity towards anyone in my heart anymore. But I did that. I mean, that was hard one to a lot of practice. So that's the second level of forgiveness. The third level is whether we would ever actually reconcile with a person. And you know, we might it might not even be wise to do that, right? right. And, and 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 in some cases, maybe it would if, if it's a family member, maybe it has to say, But even as some family members, it's not wise when there's been abuse and different things. So, so each level has its own validity without requiring the next level. But I think of forgiveness in those three levels. But our capacity to forgive has to do with connecting with the depth of our own being because that's what gives us the strength and the resilience and the context for getting out of that dualistic framework of forgiveness. Into to recognizing the non-separateness of life and realizing that we're all suffering and really nobody's innocent and nobody's guilty. And we're all kind of in this human condition together and on this path to liberation together. So in the largest sense.
0: We, we, we have to end. I could talk to you forever. Um, I really appreciate the generosity of your spirit and your teachings. And uh, I, I don't know if it had been me um, if I would have been able to find my my path um, through uh, what could have just as easily been just perpetual darkness. And you found um, a light not just for you, but now you, you work with other people and you, you work with people who not are just the incarcerated, but the, those who incarcerate them, the, the, the prison guards. And, you know, I just, when I read about the things you, you, you've gone through and done. And I, and I remember my, my short time in that incredibly tension-filled environment where one wrong look for more than three seconds could get your face punched in and that'd be that. Um, and you found some way for love and for peace and for compassion. And I just wonder, we get so caught up in all of the events, as they're called, of the day, what can you help us with to be able to disassociate from things and remember essence? What is it you could help me with here?
1: Well, you know, I think the um, through line of all our great spiritual traditions and contemplative traditions is love, and that love heals all. And, um, but it's also in the same way that Martin Luther King communicated that love without power is weak and power without love is brutality that 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 there is a strength needed as well and i think that's part of the radical responsibility message is is developing that strength and radical responsibility is really it begins with personal responsibility but ultimately is meant to be the inner the the the, um uh the complete synthesis of, of, of uh both personal and collective responsibility and so um You know, I'm so grateful. The reason I was able to do what you were describing with that time while I was incarcerated was because of these um, profound inner technologies, contemplative practices that I was blessed to receive and my dedication to working with those, uh, which were all simply ways into embodied presence. to being physically in our body, which reconnects us with the earth and also then reconnects us with our heart with our emotional body and the deeper we go with that the more it connects us with the greater world and, it, and it's just a journey into in it's establishing ourselves not as not as a separate ego but more just a being with with integrity and and purpose and presence and then from that place connecting to the interconnectedness of life and uh and we're all surrounded within our own being and around us with just an ocean of beingness and energy and love and it's completely uh limitless and what separates us from that is our you know that small self the constricted self and and so in any spiritual religious tradition there are means that begin to deconstruct or dissolve or transcend that small self to connect with this greater oceanic quality of our being and the totality of life the fundamental nature of which is love
0: Dr. Fleet Mall, uh, I thank you. Um, Buddhist friend once gave me a blessing that I always remember. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be blessed. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. And I wish that for you. I really appreciate you spending time with us. I'm not that kind of rabbi. You take care of yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you.